There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 416. And today, we've got Whit Fosberg, the president and CEO of the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership, here to discuss the public and private land conservation-related policies bills and initiatives that hunters and anglers need to be watching. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by First Light. And today we are in week three of our Conservation Month series, and we're kind of taking an approach today that combines what we talked about in the first week and the second week. So week one, we had Randy Newberg talking public lands. In week two, we had Matt and Adam from Land and Legacy talking private land. And today we've got Wit from the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership to talk about where these two things come together. So the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership is a nonprofit conservation organization that works to develop partnerships across a wide variety of different folks to move hunting and fishing related policies forward. Things that are good for hunters, things that are good for anglers, things that are good for wildlife and habitat. And they find, they find ways to bring different organizations, hunting organizations, fishing organizations, uh, different folks within the conservation world and, and kind of move them in a way that we can achieve more by working together. It's a collaborative approach and the TRCP works to build those relationships and, and get those things moving in the right direction. So today, Witt is going to kind of fill us in on what those very most important initiatives are, what's happening right now across the landscape, across the political world, across the on-the-ground kind of conservation movement, what's happening with private lands, what are the things that we need to be thinking about to make sure that there's healthy landscapes out there on private land for deer and deer hunters and all those other critters, and same thing for public lands. So we kind of take those two approaches that we talked about in the last couple of weeks, bring them together, get this high-level kind of 30,000 foot overview that WIT is is really well informed and able to help us on. So we're going to discuss things like the next farm bill, which is really, really important when it comes to the places that we deer hunters focus on. The farm bill is a tremendous conservation focused bill. So that's something we talk a lot about. 
We talk about how conservation could and should be thought about within the upcoming infrastructure bill debate that I'm sure many of you guys have been hearing about in the news. There's some stuff in there that or maybe there could be some stuff in there that should be helpful to deer and hunting and the outdoors and, and the natural world. We're going to talk about migration corridors. This is something that Randy and I kind of teed up and I wanted Wit to dive into it further. We talk a decent bit about chronic wasting disease, which I know is something that isn't a fun thing to talk about, but is important. And Wit's got some updates for us there too. And then this one's something you don't hear a whole lot about within the hunting world, but it seems to be changing. We're talking about why organizations like the National Deer Association, the Archery Trade Association, Whitetails Unlimited, the Pope and Young Club, and dozens of other hunting and fishing industry companies and organizations, why they're now talking about changes in climate and getting past the weird political polarization of this topic and talking about how hunters and anglers can push for common sense approaches to tackling this challenge and improving wildlife habitat and the environment doing good things to make sure we can hunt and fish. So that's one of those topics that for a long time has been uh, super polarizing, but it seems to be changing. And Wit's got some updates there that I think are are worth hearing. So that's the game plan today. Um, it's an interesting conversation. I enjoyed it. If you want to stay up on these things, if you want to be a well-informed hunter or angler and be able to you know advocate when necessary, this kind of information is going to help you do it. The TRCP is a great resource and WIT is as well. So that's what we got. I enjoyed this one. I hope you do. Thanks for tuning in for Conservation Month and for thinking about these topics. Um, I think we can all make a big difference and I'm excited to you know be a part of this community that I know is doing good things. So that is going to be it for me. Let's get to my conversation with WIT Fosberg. All right, now with me on the line is Wit Fosberg. Wit, uh, welcome back to the show. Hey, thank you very much, Mark. It's uh, great to be back with you. Yeah, I always enjoy our conversations, and um, and this one, maybe maybe I don't want to say more than others, but especially today, it's just that time of year, at least for me, where a lot of conservation and environmental things start popping up in the news, you know, with Earth Day and everything. And it's just always, for whatever reason, this time of year gets me reinvigorated to be looking at this big picture stuff. You know, so much of the year can be focused on this hunting trip or this fishing trip or this project or, or whatever. But this springtime period, at least for me, always seems like a great opportunity to step back and look at, you know, what are the things going on that ensure that I have places to go and have critters to chase and, and do those things. And uh, there's few people out there that are more involved with that than you would. Um, so how are you feeling these days? Are you feeling invigorated or are you worn down? <laughs> no, you know, actually I feel pretty good. Um, you know, I think that, you know, first of all, spring is a great time. You know, I've, I've managed to get out turkey hunting a couple of times in the last couple of weeks and, uh, the shad are in the river and, you know, stripers are in the river. So it's, uh, you know, sort of a time where optimism blooms and, uh, we're not yet to the dog days of summer here in DC. So no, I, I think it's a good time to be optimistic. And then from a policy perspective, you know, new administration, there are always a lot of changes. There's always a lot of things they're trying to do. And, you're, you're scrambling, especially given, you know, the last four years and then these upcoming four years, you, know, you could not have pulled more polar opposites in a lot of conservation policies. Yeah. But, you know, we tend to sort of, you know, track that middle ground anyway. So I think that, you know, we, you know, we feel optimistic about what we can accomplish. We felt optimistic about what we accomplished 
are proud of what we accomplished in the last year or two. And uh, no, I think you know this is one of those issues that remains pretty much bipartisan in Congress. And you know, with that, uh, I think we have an opportunity to actually get stuff done, whereas a lot of other people just you know gnash their teeth over gridlock in Washington. Yeah. So how do you? How does this swinging of the pendulum from left to right, left to right, that we seemingly have every four to eight years? I mean, Randy Newberg and I were talking the other day about this and how you see. You know, historically over the last 50 years or so, we'll get good on the environment, but not so good on hunting rights and guns when you go to the D side and you'll be great on hunting rights and guns, but less so on the environment or public lands when we swing to the left. Um, Are you seeing that changing at all? Are you seeing that we're starting to get a little more of that middle ground like you mentioned? Or is that something that you guys are constantly battling, given the fact that you're kind of planted in the middle as well as far as what your guys' role is? Yeah, you know, I think that we are, you know, swinging back toward the middle a little bit. I mean, historically, Republicans have been as good on conservation as Democrats have. You could argue even better going all the way back to, you know, Theodore Roosevelt's time. You know, EPA got created under Nixon. You know, that Clean Water Act came law under Nixon. You know, so you have, uh, you know, there have been, you know, Republican presidents that have a lot to crow about in terms of conservation. And it's really only been in the last 30 years where, you know, you've seen that partisanship. And you talk about the swings that go from administration to administration. I mean, I think our main goal is to point out that, you know, these are should not be partisan issues. Um, you know, conservation, habitat, you know, hunting, fishing, uh, these are things that ought to be bringing us together. And I think you've seen that in the last year. In the last two years, we passed the big Dingle Conservation Act, which, you know, established a bunch of new wilderness areas, wild and scenic rivers, but also permanently reauthorized land and water conservation fund. And then, you know, in the last year, you know, we got the Great American Outdoors Act that fully funded forever, you know, the land and water conservation fund and invested almost $10 billion into, you know, fixing the maintenance backlog on our public lands, which could be, you know, trails, campsites, roads, boat ramps, you name it, visitor centers. Uh, there is a lot of neglect on our public lands. And, you know, we would even see it in things like, you know, managing our forests. And I think that there's real opportunities here to sort of make some progress. And, you know, those acts, Dingle Bill, you know, Great American Outdoors Act, passed with overwhelming majorities, you know, Democrats and Republicans. And I think that, you know, then we also passed toward the end of last year, the America's Conservation Enhancement Act, which was reauthorized or created a series of on-the-ground restoration bills, you know, like the North American Wetlands Conservation Act, the National Fish Habitat Partnership Act, um, you know, programs like that that are, you know, sort of the, you know, I'd say the, uh, you know, the basic building stones of our community. So Ducks Unlimited uses the Wetlands Conservation Act to restore wetlands around this country. Trout Unlimited uses, you know, fish habitat partnerships to restore headwater streams. And I think that, you know, we're seeing that kind of work embraced and expanding and in a very nonpartisan way, um, which is great. And I think that, you know, you know, our goal is always going to be to make sure we have durable conservation solutions that don't genuflect back and forth every four years. And that was really one of the frustrations when the you know, Trump guys came into office was that, you know, they immediately assumed anything that happened under Obama was bad, even the really good stuff, and jettisoned as much as they could. And it's just incredibly frustrating to have that. So one of our main you know jobs we've been trying to do 
since well before the election was to, you know, you know, work with you know, the Biden campaign at that time. Now the Biden administration to point out, you know, the really some very solid stuff that the Trump guys did on uh, migration policy on access and try to not throw that out, but to build upon it and all that can be improved and it can be strengthened, but it's something that shouldn't, you know, just swing back and forth because the other guy did it. And, you know, that is, that can be challenging in this environment, but, you know, we've had a pretty good reception so far from the Biden folks. It doesn't look like they're going to throw out you know, the migration executive order, a bunch of the access programs that the Trump guys did. And I, you know, we'll see more in you know time, but I think they are going to build upon that stuff. So, yeah, that's why we're cautiously optimistic right here. That's good. So, so what then, what are you, what's got you the most fired up? Like, are, is there one thing that you're either the most excited about or the most worried about? It sounds like a little bit optimistic. So what's the thing that, that you are the most optimistic about maybe? Well, I mean, everything in the, for the next four years is going to be you know, viewed through the climate lens. And, uh, you know, actually, I'm excited for our community to really engage in that because the things that are good for climate, like sucking carbon back into the soils, you know, the sequestration, the adaptation, the resilience aspects of carbon are really good for hunting and fishing and good for conservation. And if you look at the science on climate change, and I'm not a climate scientist, but somewhere in the range, about 20% of the solution is basically sucking carbon out of the atmosphere. And by far, the best way to do that is through natural processes like, you know, grasses and trees. And, uh, and so I think we, you know, and we had a, you know, convened our community for, you know, multiple times over the last couple of years to really get everybody on the same page. And if folks want to look at, you know, we have a, our land, we have a website that's, you know, I think some, I'll pull up the URL right now, make sure I have it right. But a website that lays out the position of our community on climate saying, yeah, you got to reduce emissions, but you also have to have a major investment in, you know, the on the ground, you know, the carbon sequestration side. And, you know, if you want to think about what that means, you know, that is, you know, things like reforestation, that is more land and agriculture in conservation and not in row crops. That is cover crops, you know, where you do have some row crops. It is, you know, barrier islands and better wetland systems that are natural buffers for hurricanes, floods, you know, whatever it might be. They also clean the water and they provide great fish and wildlife habitat. So I think that you know, when I think about it, I think about, and I'm you know excited about something, I'm thinking about how we can apply what our community wants anyway into this broader framework of climate and natural infrastructure. Yeah, because I think it you know, works really well for as a climate solution, and it works really well for fish and wildlife and habitat. Yeah, yeah, you know, climate change is one of those things that has become such a political. Um, I don't know if it's political football, but a, but a but a flashpoint. Definitely one of those things that's become so politicized that I think a lot of people have visceral reactions just to the to the word, to the words climate change and immediately feel like they have to retreat back to their camp. When they hear that, it's encouraging them to see, for myself at least, what you guys are putting out there with this conservationist for climate solutions kind of initiative yeah. and the fact that there's a wide array of organizations stepping up and saying like, hey, let's set the politics aside. There, There is clear 
scientific evidence that stuff's happening and we can make a difference to further, you know, hunting and fishing. So, I mean, organizations like the National Deer Association, the Archery Trade Association, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, Pope and Young, Whitetail Unlimited, Trout Unlimited, all these organizations have signed on to to basically acknowledge this is a real thing that we need to think about and let's let's put the politics aside and let's just work on some things that can help wildlife and wildlife habitat right i mean that's that's yeah, no, and that in yeah, itself you're, is you're exactly right yeah and i think that you know and, and listen the polarization and the fact that this became you know sort of republicans versus democrats became green new deal versus you know you know more coal i mean those sorts of you know sort of you know extremes are not helpful and so what we've tried to do is, and I, you know, it's called ourlandwaterwildlife.org, and folks can check it out, and is present this not in a scary way, but as something that makes, you know, a ton of sense for the things we really care about, which is better hunting and fishing, cleaner water, better habitat, more biodiversity. I mean, to give you one example on this, you know, a managed forest, like in private hands, is, you know, absorbs about seven times more carbon than our national forests do, because our national forests, we've stopped doing active management on so much of it. And to the extent that we can go back in there and take out those areas that have been you know, blighted by pine beetle infestation, and they're just going to blow up in a fire at some point, you know, cut them, replant, you know, create a mosaic of habitats to wilderness, roadless areas, early successional forests. I mean, that is good for wildlife, and that's good for climate. So I think that, you know, it's Again, how you talk about it, I'm not going to go into the heartland and talk about climate change. I'm going to go in and talk about let's improving soil health through carbon sequestration. Let's go to Louisiana and talk about you know rebuilding barrier islands along their coast and rebuilding wetlands to protect the cities. And yes, a carbon solution too, but it's also something that if you live along the coast of Louisiana, you're going to do because you're going to get flooded if you don't have it. And there's only so high you can build those levees. Mm-hmm. So I think that it's just really a different way of framing these issues. But in the long term, I think, you know, we all want the same thing. Even if you look at Republicans in Congress, I mean, they've acknowledged that climate change is happening. There are a ton of Republican bills out there that would address it. There's a difference in ideology sometimes between the Republican side and the Democratic side with more of a command and control versus incentives, you know, technology versus a carbon tax or a cap and trade. Yeah, fine. You know, I'm not the smartest guy in the room. Let somebody else figure that stuff out. What our community can do is, you know, we can help with the habitat side. And, you know, that's, and that I think is really good for the things that you and I care about. Yeah. So, so what would you say for, for hunters and anglers listening now and, and this being something that, you know, for a long time has not been top of mind, at least within the conversation within this community, you know, where are we at on that? Is it simply, Hey, let's start paying more attention to this and look for how the creative ways that we can be a part of the solution. Uh, is that where we're at? Uh, what, you know, what kind of action should people be actually thinking about this point? Um, well, from your perspective? Yeah, so I think the first thing is to let's, you know, before you have sort of a knee jerk reaction and some sort of, you know, snarky comment on a website, you know, sort of, uh, you know, take a deep breath, you listen, look at the science, have a discussion, because chances are you're a lot closer than you think you are in terms of folks on the other side that have been advocating something you tend not to believe in. And then uh, in terms of what you can do, see this as an opportunity, engage. I mean, you know, we want to see the farm bill programs, you know, the conservation programs in the farm bill, which is about a $6 billion annual program. We'd like to see them doubled 
and the you know, the next the 2023 farm bill. So in the numbers that Washington is kicking around these days, that's very doable. But if you think about twice as much land in conservation out there, that how can you, if you're a hunter or an angler, how can you think that's anything but a good idea? And we're not talking about you know sort of converting our you know premium croplands into you know CRP. I mean CRP and the other conservation programs are really designed for the more marginal habitats, which you know unfortunately we tend to plow up and put into row crops and drain the adjacent wetlands and and we got to get away from those incentives and instead incentivize private landowners to do what's right for the land and for all the critters and for the water and and for soil health. And so even things like cover crops, you go on the eastern shore of Maryland, people have been doing cover crops for years, primarily because it was a solution for all the runoffs that were going into the Chesapeake Bay and really creating problems there. But you go to a place like Iowa and the use of cover crops, you know, is, you know, rare. So, you know, let's start thinking and, you know, I'm not going to tell somebody, somebody in Iowa how to farm. They know that far better than I'm ever going to know it. But, you know, think about if we can incentivize them to do things like, you know, during the winter, you know, put some other crops down that you know, keep the soil in place and absorb carbon and we'll make it worth your while financially. Yeah, let's, let's think about that. Yeah. So, again, I think going back to your original question, let's just not sort of, you know, back into our corners. Let's have a conversation. Let's figure out ways that, you know, work for us. And, you know, as you know, hunters and anglers tend to be on the front lines of, you know, climate change. We see duck migrations being delayed or geese not even getting down to the Chesapeake Bay. You know, we see elk staying up in the mountains longer. You know, you know we see, you know, brook trout home range and the Appalachians retreating every year. And you just can't ignore these trends. And so, yeah, listen, let's be a part of the solution instead of just, you know, complaining about things. Yeah. And and given the fact that there is momentum around taking action on some climate related things, you know, like you just said, a lot of the priorities that we as hunters and anglers have also would benefit the climate. And so we kind of have an opportunity to to ride the momentum wave to to get some wins for things that we have previously historically always cared about. And then it becomes a win win for for all sides. So from that yeah, perspective, exactly. it makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, I mean, that's that's a, that's what gets me excited about the time we're in right now is I just think there are a ton of opportunities for our community yeah. in the years ahead. And we just have to you know, stand up and engage. Yeah. So you mentioned the farm bill. Um, the the next farm bill authorization is in 2023, right? That's correct. Okay. So we're, you know, uh, somewhere around two years, year and a half, two years out from that. This is, I think it's accurate to say it's the largest private land related conservation bill that comes through every handful of years. Yeah. It's the largest conservation program in this country, period. Okay. I mean, we spend more on conservation through the farm bill than we do on all of our public lands combined. Yeah. So, you know, so and from a pure dollar standpoint, it's the biggest, but that makes sense. I mean, 70% of the lower 48 are in private hands, and the majority of that is either in, you know, farm or in you know, managed forest. So, so, so the, it's a, uh, you know, it's a huge, it's a huge deal in terms of conservation. Yeah. So with this next one coming up then, what are the big priority issues or changes you want to see made? I know there, you know, I know CRP is a big one, I'm sure. Um, but could you kind of walk us through as far as a hunting community, what should we be paying attention to and, you know, writing to our representatives and senators and whatnot about what are those big asks we have for the next bill? 
Well, I'll start even before the next bill. We have to get the implementation of the current bill, you know, moving. I mean, we have CRP is down to almost about 20 million acres right now. It was a high of about 38 million acres, you know, a couple of decades ago. And it's, to say it's been dying on the vine is an understatement. Um, you know, there is another 3 million acres that are expected to basically rotate out of the program later on this year. So, and the reason that's happening is, and I'm going to be critical of the Trump administration on this one, is that they just, you know, didn't care about the program. They were much more interested in just sending bailout checks to farmers to do nothing than investing in programs like CRP that work. So you had, you know, limited signups. The signups that we had, you know, were not offering, you know, any decent incentives. The rental rates were too low. It just wasn't in a farmer's interest, you know, to take his or her land and put it into CRP. And we have to make that program competitive now. We don't want to wait till the 2023 farm bill you know, to fix it. Let's make some changes now. We think the current administration has extended the current CRP sign-up, and they're going to come up with ways to basically increase the incentives to get more acres enrolled in that. And you know, if you're a pheasant hunter in South Dakota, you care a whole lot about CRP. If you're a deer hunter, you know that is your your habitat too. You know, ducks very important. But I think that, you know, goal number one is to fully implement the current farm bill, which hasn't been done. And then two, as we're looking toward the next one, I mentioned an overall doubling of, you know, the conservation title of the farm bill, going from about $6 billion to $12 billion a year. And we want to see things like incentive payments, you know, for any of these programs increase. We want to see more long-term easements, uh, you know, in sort of critical wetland areas, for example. Um, we want to see things like the Regional Conservation Partnership Program, which looks at entire landscapes and you know, sort of takes a holistic approach to how do we conserve this area and make it work for private agriculture. And so it may be a whole bunch of different things from stream restoration projects to easement projects to you know, incentives for cover crops or whatever it might be. So I think that you know, all of the programs have their champions and have their merits. We just need more of all of the above as we look into the next you know, farm bill. And I think that we're already you know, sort of beginning that process of convening. There, we have that 25 groups underneath our TRCP umbrella that really care about farm bill, Ducks Unlimited, Pheasants Forever, Turkey Federation. And you know, we're already having those discussions about, okay, if we're king and we're going to come back in here and we're going to redraft this, Let's not be wedded to the way we've always done in the past. Let's think about what works best, you know, not just for fish and wildlife and water quality, but also for the, you know, the farmer. Because if it doesn't work for the farmer, it's not going to work for our interests either. So we're having those discussions now. We welcome any input from folks out there about things they've seen that do work and that don't work. Uh, they can go to our you know, website. You know, we have a whole section on Farm Bill. You know, leave a comment. You know. Uh, Andrew Earl is the guy who runs our ag program, aearl at trcp.org. Send him your thoughts about you know, things you've seen that work and don't work, because now is the time to you know, let us know what you're seeing out there and things, changes that you think would make some sense. Yeah. And uh, your listeners are all over the country, and a lot of them are in farm country and whitetail country. Yeah. Uh, you know, we want to hear what they're hearing. Yeah. Hey, you know, it seems like something like like this this bill, the farm bill that comes up over and over again, it's, it's, it's almost, 
equivalent to something like the Great American Outdoors Act, which was a thing more public land focused, what was getting a, a ton of funding for backlogged maintenance and which was securing funding for the Land and Water Conservation Fund. It was it was securing funding for really, really important, you know, public access type initiatives. The Farm Bill secures funding for really, really important private land related conservation and access. You've got the voluntary um, hunter access program that you know, makes so many places across the country available for deer hunters. Then, of course, there's a CRP program that you described, which puts really high quality wildlife habitat on the ground. And then all the other pieces of this puzzle that incentivize, you know, quality wetlands, quality grasslands, all the stuff that we need to deer hunt, to, to duck hunt, whatever. It, it seems like this is on par as far as the positive impact it can have, but it just isn't as sexy. I think it's harder to get people fired up about a farm bill every five years, even though it could make a really, really big difference. Like how, how do we, I don't know. What do you, th- I mean, is there any truth to that? Wit? Do you feel like, I, I feel like this still flies under the radar for the average hunter out there, even though it has so yeah, much I mean, importance. Yeah. Yeah. Mark. I mean, I think you framed the issue exactly right. This is essentially a private land equivalent of the great American outdoors act of, you know, the Dingle act. And it's that big a deal. And it happens every five years. Um, but it's, you know, it's not clean and simple. I mean, the great majority of money out of the farm bill is the nutrition program, which is food stamps. And there's a reason for that, because there was a compromise reached long ago, you know, where you did that, you know, you wanted something to help urban, you know, congressmen and members of the Senate. And you want to have something that would you know, benefit, you know, the rural farmers. So they lumped, you know, both the nutrition assistance and, you know, the conservation programs and the rest of the traditional farm programs all in one bill. So, you know, the noise is always about, you know, how much money we're spending on food stamps or how we're subsidizing corporate farms or things like that. And the benefits, you know, especially on the conservation side, you just don't hear about those. And, I mean, it's obviously a huge deal, you know, for our community, for our partners, but more broadly – yeah, no, it's uh, you're exactly right. Is you know it's something that's much more difficult to get your arms around because it's such a beast. Yeah, what's the what's the time frame when it comes to influencing the upcoming farm bill? As far as you know, not folks that are working in within the policy landscape and industry, but folks like me who are just out here who want to place a phone call or send an email and start trying to make sure that our representatives are on board with this. When is that? Is that in 2022 or or when do we need to start making a ruckus to make sure good things are put into this? Well, I mean, you know, start making a ruckus right now with things like, you know, if you're you're pissed that, you know, land just keeps, you know, seeping out of the conservation reserve program, for example. You know, don't wait till 2022 or 2023 to talk about that. Talk about that now, because we want to have maintained the pressure on this administration to do something about that. So let's do that first. Second is, you know, if you have, you know, we will sort of be gearing up our advocacy for the next farm bill, probably you know, late this year, early next year and, you know, full. And you can, you'll, you can get your cues from, you know, our website or from Pheasants Forever, Ducks Unlimited, whoever, about opportunities to engage at that time. But, you know, this gives you a little bit of time right now to you know, learn more about these programs, how they might impact you. I mean, one that you mentioned that I'd forgotten to mention, that voluntary public access program, you know, that's a huge one. You know, so just so folks understand how that works, it's a $50 million program in the Farm Bill currently. 
and it provides you know grants to states on a competitive basis. And then those states go out and they develop you know easements or basically agreements with individual landowners to open up that land for public hunting and fishing. And then in return, the farmer you know gets a payment, and the state assumes liability if you know somebody gets injured on your property. So it's a program that really works. It works well with things like you know the walk-in programs in a lot of western states. You know when they started this program on the federal side through the Farm Bill, you know it was really TRCP and Pheasants Forever and AFWA Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies that worked together to create this program, the 2008 Farm Bill. But because of the money now exists, you've had these types of programs start up in states like Massachusetts, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, which you don't think about as you know traditional farm states, but are states where access can be pretty challenging. So what we want to see again, you know. Yeah, we have a you know, report on our website that lays out some of the success stories around this program that gives folks an idea of how these work. But now is the time to start advocating for more of that. Because, you know, we're trying to figure out ways to keep farmland in farmers' hands, not see it turn into condos or Walmarts or anything else. And this is another way that a farmer can, you know, get revenue coming in in addition to you know, whatever they're doing on the crop side, in addition to CRP or other conservation programs they may be enrolled in. But to the extent that, you know, this makes it easier for them to stay on land and gives us more opportunity to hunt and fish in good places, this is a win-win. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. And there's there's probably not any other issue that is impacting more hunters right now from like a really ground level than access. I mean, everyone's talking about access these days. Everyone's talking about how overcrowded some places have been feeling as we've had increased participation over the last year. So, I mean, looking for more access opportunities like this can give us, I mean, there's no, there's no knock against it as far as I'm concerned. So let's really hammer that home for sure. Yeah, and I think a lot of the you know, criticism about, you know, there are too many people at trailheads, too many people in certain areas is all very true. But that's in part because we have lost traditional access for a long, long time. In the old days in the West, you could knock on anybody's door, cross their land, access that national forest behind you. Uh, you can't do that anymore. All those lands are posted, and which then forces everybody in the, say, Western United States into you know, restricted access, you know, official access sites to that national forest, which obviously increases conflict, reduces the user experience, and it's just a bad deal all the way around. So, you know, things like the Voluntary Public Access Program for private lands create more of that. In the East, I mean, you've seen, you know, same sort of, you know, changes. In the old days, all the timber company lands in Maine or the Adirondacks, you could just go and hunt on them, but now they're almost all leased. So, if you're fortunate enough to be a part of that lease, then you got a great place to go. But a lot of other folks get shut out of that. And so these programs are critical for you know, providing the experience that is going to keep this sport you know, strong in the future. Yeah. So, so kind of hopscotching to another uh, hot topic within the world of politics right now, there's, there's a lot of talk about the big infrastructure uh, proposal coming out of the current administration. And yep. it seems like, you know, given 
the political situation, it seems like something's going to pass one way or another, whether it's bipartisan or not, something's going to happen on this front. So what does that mean for, you know, is there an opportunity there for hunter and anglers, hunters and anglers? It seems like from some of the things that I've been reading and some of the things that you guys are talking about um, with your conservation works initiative, um, you guys see some opportunities in there. Can you kind of outline where you think, wildlife and habitat and stuff like that fits into this maybe? Yeah, I think this is another opportunity. And we usually don't think about things like an infrastructure bill as an opportunity for fish and wildlife. But, you know, part of that is definitions. And, you know, part of what we have been trying to advocate, and, you know, again, we have another whole, you know, web, you know, section of our website is about this. But what we're trying to advocate is that, you know, first of all, let's redefine how we think about infrastructure. It's not just about, you know, bigger levees and, you know, just sort of the hard, you know, gray infrastructure, as they call it. It is also about the green infrastructure. It is about wetlands. It is about, you know, uh, barrier islands, the things we've talked about that can make huge differences in terms of communities, but also for our issues. And I think we're making some progress on that. I mean, you know, North American Wetlands Conservation Act is great program for ducks, but it's also, you know, critically important for preserving wetlands, which in turn, you know, take care of reduced flooding and improve water quality. So if you're not sending all this, you know, polluted water down the upper Mississippi River as fast as you can, overwhelming the, you know, wastewater treatment facilities in cities like Des Moines, you know, you're doing a good thing, not only for people, but also for the environment and for, you know, the things we like to go hunt for. So I think that, you know, part of it is definitions and really thinking about infrastructure in a different way because, you know, historically the Corps of Engineers, you know, organizations like that have viewed infrastructure as one way and that's something that is built. And we're trying to expand that definition a little bit. But you also think about things like the highway bill, which is part of, you know, it probably is going to be part of any big infrastructure package. You know, we had, you know, pilot programs of $250 million in both the House bill and the Senate bills that would pay for wildlife crossings. So if you're in, in Wyoming, you may have seen these, you know, to take mule deer, elk, pronghorn over the interstates so they don't, you know, get hit and, uh, you know, people aren't put at risk also. And these are things that, you know, make a ton of sense. The animals use them. They habituate to them. Um, and, and obviously there was a whole bunch of things in terms of siting where you put these. But we want to see that program in this current effort, you know, kicked out to $500 million and go for things beyond just big game in the Western United States to a lot of Eastern programs. I mean, there's issues with black bears in Tennessee, elk in Kentucky and Pennsylvania, you know, reptiles and amphibians in New Jersey. So there are a bunch of different places we need to think about how do we get animals that always have to move over these, you know, systems that are often lethal to them and to people. So you know, that's just an idea of we think about infrastructure, the ways that we can get some of our priorities you know, built into these you know, broader programs. Now, there's going to be a ton of stuff that has nothing to do with our issues from rural broadband to traditional roads and bridges, and that's all fine. But we just want to make sure that you know, as Congress looks at putting together a big package on this, um, that our issues are included. Now, when the Biden administration, you know, sort of rolled out its initial thoughts and blueprint for what would be in there, you know, they've talked about this natural infrastructure, which is important. They've talked about, you know, restoring the Everglades 
you know, which is, you know, critical and obviously a priority of ours. They've talked about restoring wetland function around the Great Lakes. So I think that, you know, there are a lot of folks that have been hearing this that are going to be on the same page with us. But like climate, you know, we see this as another opportunity. Is this one of those things where it's, like, how do you see the outdoors community engaging on this one? Is there, are we at a stage yet where we have a concerted or we should have a concerted effort of, of pushing any of these things, or are we still kind of in a wait and see holding pattern to see what actually gets put into some kind of bill? Uh, where do you feel well, stuff stands in that? Yeah. And, you know, I think that there's a, uh, there's an opportunity to, you know, sort of engage right away. I mean, first of all, we've got, you know, a, go to our website. We have a national infrastructure, you know, sort of microsite within that that really talks about what do we mean by, you know, natural infrastructure, wetlands, barrier islands, you know, living shorelines, you know, rivers and streams, all that stuff. So become familiar with some of the, you know, the topics that are being discussed. But right now there is not a, an infrastructure bill that has actually been put together. So that is coming. So there will be a time, you know, in the not too distant future where everyone will have a chance to weigh in and to, you know, support, you know, S23 or whatever it's going to be, you know, that will be, you know, a the Senate or House version of an infrastructure package. And I actually think that this is one of those areas that there's a lot of bluster right now, but I think Democrats and Republicans believe that we need to invest in a big way in infrastructure. You know, how big away is another thing. What are sort of the, you know, the ancillary issues that might get tacked on? There's going to be some debate about that. But I think there is broad consensus that, you know, infrastructure has been neglected for too long in this country and needs to be invested in. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see how it all plays out. I, I, I hope this is one of those things that can bring folks from all sides together and get something that makes sense uh, moving forward. Uh, but yep. <laughs> as it seems, there's always seems to be opportunities for uh, things to get crazy. Who knows? Um, oh, always, always opportunities for that. Don't yeah, that. yeah, that's for sure. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options, like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of sick sick folks, or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at urgentcarekit.com slash eater and use promo code MEATEATER. That's promo code MEATEATER at urgentcarekit.com slash eater. Hey, everybody knows Weber Grills. I've been using Weber Grills my whole life, and check it out. They got a pellet grill, the Weber Searwood Pellet Grill. Now, with a pellet grill, you can smoke, roast, and sear what I like to do. 
on the same grill. You can go from low and slow, okay, on smoke boost mode, which gives you great smoke at 180 degrees, or crank this thing all the way to a heat sear at 600 degrees. It's got a full great sear zone, so you can put more food on the flame. This this, this is my way of bull saying If I was going to cook roast one way, that's how I like to do it, sear roast. Utilize the smoke boost setting to intensify that smoky flavor. Direct flame cooking creates searing, crisping, and browning. Food's going to look as good as it tastes. This grill gets hot in 15 minutes. Cleanup is easy. Cook confidently with intuitive digital controls at the grill and enjoy the sleek, easy-to-use surface. You can also add a heavy-duty rotisserie or rust-resistant griddle insert to up your game. Get fired up for your new Weber Searwood pellet grill. You mentioned another thing I want to talk about, which was um, these migration corridors. Um, I've been kind of personally becoming more and more fascinated with um, corridors and connectivity and um, a lot of these ideas around kind of island ecosystem impacts and how that is starting to happen across, you know, actual contiguous land, you know, so there's a lot of ideas about how wildlife populations um, adjust and live and thrive or, or don't thrive on actual islands in the middle of the water, but also that stuff seems to translate to, you know, areas where a wild area essentially becomes a de facto island because it's surrounded by development or or whatever. So um, something like a mountain range surrounded by a desert or the, the greater Yellowstone ecosystem surrounded by increasingly, you know, more development cities, etc. Um, and, and one of the big things here is the importance of having these corridors, migration corridors and whatnot, so that you can not only have actual big game migrations continue, but you can also have these populations, you know, be able to connect between different chunks of, of ground so that, you know, a a bear that's in one area can mingle with bears 50 miles away. And so they don't get stuck in their own little Island. And then that population never gets a influx of, of, of new genes and, and it can better weather, you know, changes in whether it's climate or pressures from people or fire or, or whatever. So I've been, I've been just reading a lot about this. It's very interesting. Um, I'm just curious where your, where you guys are on these things, stuff like the wildlife quarters conservation act. Um, just curious, you know, what, what's on your radar on that front other than you mentioned the wildlife crossings. Yeah, so, I mean, science has come a long way on this issue over the years. And listen, you and Ronella have talked about, like, Isle Royal and the wolves and the moose, and that's a classic example of what happens over time when you can't get influx of new genetics into a population, and they end up, you know, essentially blinking out. So, you know, movement is critical, particularly for a big game species, and we've, I think everybody who knows, who hunts, sort of knows that in, intrinsically. I mean, you, you obviously things like Path of the Pronghorn, you know, coming out of Jackson and going down toward the Red Desert is famous. Uh, the mule deer research that's been going on in Wyoming is just, you know, fascinating, where they've collared mule deer and tracked them, and they may travel 150 miles. And uh, and then you start to think about the things they need along that journey. It's not just how to get across a highway or how to deal with fences. It is, you know, the stopover areas where they, you know, gain strength for the rest of that trip. 
And if you've got an oil field or some sort of development of what was an historic stopover, they just keep on going. They don't have that nutrition. So you know, our thought about what you know, goes into protect these migrations, first of all, what you know, the migrations are like, but then what we need to do to protect them has changed. And it's just super cool science. And you know, University of Wyoming has done a tremendous amount on this. And National Geographic has, and you know, a variety of scientists, and it's super inspiring, and it's something that the broader population can connect to as well. And you talk about bears, you know, my camp in the Adirondacks. I mean, there is a whitetail migration every year. Come right around Thanksgiving, as it starts to get cold and deep snow, they essentially you know leave our property, head down, cross the Hudson River, you know, probably a twenty you know mile give or take you know migration into an area where they've, I guess, historically, you know, wintered over the years. And then they move back in the spring. And it's one of those things that the only reason we know about it is because we've stumbled upon it hunting. When all of a sudden toward, you know, that late season time, you start seeing all these does and fawns and, you know, spike bucks, you know, just cruising down here. I mean, the paths are beaten to mud. The big bucks stick around. They can handle the heavy winter. But the smaller animals, the younger animals, you know, they all basically leave the property. And it's, you know, something, you know, I wasn't aware of, you know, 15, 20 years ago, but we've kind of figured out over time. And if that's happening there, then it's happening in a lot of different places. So it just argues that we need to create these incentives to allow these animals to move, particularly as the climate gets warmer. And they're going to have, you know, more and more of a need. And so how does that look? Yeah, we talk about crossings, but we also think about things like the Land and Water Conservation Fund. And if we're going to be purchasing you know, lands or easements on private lands you know, that are going to be critically important to allow these, you know, let's think about that, not just in terms of this is a beautiful vista, but that this is a really important site on their migration journey. And let's use some of these resources that we have for these types of projects in those areas. In other words, just follow the science and you know, maintain these migrations. Now, I'm going to give the Trump administration a lot of credit on this one. When they did Secretary Order 3062, which basically directed the Western states you know, that had mule deer, pronghorn, elk, to come up with their top migration you know, corridors in those states, and then you know, work with the federal government to, to create conservation plans. And that was not only important in its own right, but that also led to a bunch of the Western states creating their own programs. And you had states like Utah and Wyoming that had done a fair bit on migration already. But then you had others like, you know, Colorado, Nevada, you know, New Mexico's doing this, you know, come up with their, their own programs that are going to be critically important in the future. So we just want to make sure there's no backsliding on that because, you know, that is, you know, really important stuff. What do you see as the next steps on that? So the executive order got those plans being put in place. Um, what's what's necessary to get that into actual action? All right. So I think you know, we talked a little bit about, for example, the highway bill and funding, you know, to because one of these crossings over especially a big interstate is expensive. So, you know, we need to have money for crossings. We need to have money to incentivize farmers to change their you know, fencing structures. I mean, pronghorn don't jump over fence. They slide under fences. So they have to have, you know, particular, you know, designed types of fences that it will allow them to pass. Um, but also more broadly, you know, how do we make sure that this is embraced and works for the private landowner and they don't see it as something that 
all of a sudden, you know, it's another you know burden that's being imposed upon them uh, without any resources to help them. So, you know, let's figure out some financial incentives. And that's what it takes to retrofit fences to, you know, sort of provide, you know, that, you know, you know, grasses or whatever they need and that stopover habitat. You know, how do we do a better job of citing things like oil, gas, solar, wind development so that it's well off of these corridors and doesn't impact either winter habitat or summer habitat? I mean, these are all the things that we've got to sort of put into policy now that we've embraced conceptually the idea of conserving migration corridors. Yeah. So I think a lot of that stuff was included in the wildlife corridors and Wildlife Corridors Conservation Act that passed the House last summer, I believe. Um, it, where do you see that going? Is that you know going to be resurrected? Do you think, or or a new version? Well, there, I think, yeah, I think you're going to see a, a new, some new versions of this. I mean, so you know, we had a little bit of heartburn, you know, with the one that came out of the House, not because it was ill-intended by any means, but you know, in my mind, the last thing we need is another federal designation of migration corridors, which just We've seen it from other, you know, top-down solutions, you know, from Washington that are not, you know, received well in the West. They think it's here we go again, you know, Washington, D.C. telling us how to do our business. And I just think that, you know, if what we're doing right now, you know, with the you know, incentive-based approach to corridors is working, we ought to expand that. And if we turn it into a, quote, federal program, you know, we risk, you know, sort of the, you know, the traditional black, black helicopter crowd that he thinks here they come in. This is a you know, stalking horse for, you know, my, you know, for getting into my land. And it's just going to create controversy. Well, I don't think we need it. I mean, honestly, I just don't believe we need to have, you know, sort of a federal designation of migration corridors. Let's incentivize the states and private landowners to just conserve these corridors. And that's the place where I think the federal government can play the biggest role and not necessarily in designating corridors. So then for us on the ground, it then becomes kind of pointing our advocacy towards our state departments, DNR, whatever like that, to, to make sure they're knowing that we care about these things too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is a partnership between the feds and the states. Um, but ultimately, the states have primary jurisdiction over managing wildlife in this country, particularly if it's not a migratory bird or if it's not an endangered species. So, you know, they're going to be the primary ones in charge of making sure we've got plenty of white-tailed deer, mule deer, you know, pronghorn, elk. I mean, you name it, all those species that move. So a federal government a program is great if it you know helps the states achieve that same conservation goal, too. So again, I think that it's got to be a partnership. It's got to be across you know, multiple federal agencies, multiple states. I mean, wildlife don't recognize state borders. So you also just, it doesn't work just to have one state doing it and not another state. So again, I think that the federal government can lead and provide incentives, but ultimately I think most of the rubber is going to hit the road at the state level. Yeah. Yeah. Man, and I also, I also should have mentioned too, you talk about next steps two critters that were left out of the Trump program were moose and wild sheep and mostly for political reasons. So we would love to see those, you know, added into the, you know, sort of the federal designation in terms of priority for these, you know, Western migrations. Uh, and then also when things about, you know, obviously connectivity is not just a Western issue, but how can we create a program that incentivizes states in the East to do the same thing that we're doing in the West right now. So I think those are the other things looking forward we need to be doing. 
Yeah. What's the story on uh, on moose and sheep? Why did they get the uh, political shaft on that one? <laughs> well, there's been you know a lot of you know the sheep growers out west have you know there's been a ton of conflict with domestic and wild sheep because obviously wild sheep don't do too well when they bump into domestic sheep from disease transfer. Uh, yeah. And so you know there's been you know really the way you're going to conserve wild sheep in the west is to keep them separate from domestic sheep. And to the extent that we're allowing those animals to move, say, between mountain ranges, you know, there were a lot of private landowners that saw this as something that, you know, was going to, you know, not be in their interest, the sheep growing industry. So I think that's where most of the the pushback came from. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Um, So another big picture issue that I'm – intrigued by and interested about uh, is the whole 30 by 30 initiative, which has been kind of a, a, a rallying cry that has been spreading across the country and the world. And most recently was, was included in an executive order by the current administration as a goal to work towards that being protecting 30% of our land and waters by 2030. Um, from a hunter and angler perspective, from the TRCP perspective, what do you guys think about this this goal, this initiative, and uh, and where do you see it going? So it's it can go one of two ways. It could either be uh, really exciting and something that again I think could really you know benefit our you know long term goals of conservation, hunting, and fishing, or it could be you know, sort of a preservationist. Let's say Trojan horse that ends up, you know, preventing active management on a lot of lands, creating a lot of controversy. So, you know, that, you know, this, you know, the 30 by 30 concept was originally international and it was a response to the collapse in biodiversity around the world. And I think that, you know, it was, you know, you know, very, you know, well-intended and, you know, necessary because, you know, the U.S. does a better job, literally, of any other country in the world of managing its fish and wildlife. But if you go to Africa, Southeast Asia, you know, a lot of other places, it is very different. And you're going to be seeing, you know, South America extinction on a very large level. We're already seeing it. So as this gets transported to the U.S., uh, there has already been a debate between and actually you use the word protect and the word that actually was in the, you know, the Biden executive order was conserve. And there, that was the reason behind that. And there were, you know, us and you know, a bunch of other groups saying that if you're serious about, you know, biodiversity, about conservation, about climate, you can't just draw lines on a map and just say, you know, people basically are not allowed in there and we're never going to touch that area because, you know, We've done that in a lot of places. Listen, I love wilderness as much as the next guy. Um, but what we need is a mosaic of habitats in this country. We need early successional. We need mid-successional. We need late successional forests. Um, we want, you know, we want to make sure that private landowners are embracing and are part of the solution to achieving that 30% goal. What that means is conservation easements, long-term easements under the farm bill. I mean, the threat is not you know, somebody, you know, grazing some cattle someplace. The threat is land being converted from native grassland to row crops, from open space to condos. And that's where you really lose the biodiversity and that's where you really lose conservation. And we've been winning the battle so far. You know, we had a 
you know, the executive order that came out of the White House specifically used the word conserve and launched a stakeholder process that includes private landowners to talk about what are going to be the definitions around conservation as we think about achieving these goals by 2030. And I think that's a very positive step because then you know, what we're doing is we're thinking much more broadly than just you know, drawing lines on a map and protecting areas from the humans. The humans have always been a part of the environment. We're always going to be. And, uh, you know, and I think, as you know, when you look at a place like Indiana, where the rough grouse has now been listed as a threatened species in the States, it's not because they've been overhunted. It's because we no longer have cutting any wood out there. And we just don't have those early successional forests. So I think as we think about this, particularly in a biodiversity frame, I think this, again, is going to work in our community's interest if we engage and if we talk about, you know, the broad, you know, conservation benefits um, that go beyond just wilderness and monuments. So in a, in, in a best case scenario, you would like to see this measured not only in, you know, number of acres that are protected as parks or wildlife refuges or wilderness or anything like that, but also with private lands that are, are under conservation easements. Um, yeah. What else? And maybe not even, per, not even permanent conservation easement. You could be a 15 year CRP contract. I mean, in my mind that's protected. I mean, it may not be in 15 years and we have to readjust, you know, we have to go back in and work with that landowner to re-enroll those lands. But in terms of, you know, you know, sort of heading heading off the you know, species collapse of getting more land into better management of dealing with our climate goals, our infrastructure goals. These all work together. Yeah. So I think that you know, I think that the private landowners have to be a part of the solution on this. I think that working lands on our national forests need to be a part of it. I mean, nobody wants to go back to the good old days of you know clear cuts everywhere like we're seeing in the spotted owl wars. But we've moved on as a country from that. And you can have active management and manage for early successional species on our national forests and have that land be considered conserved, in my mind. Yeah. Because it's not going to be developed and it's going to be producing you know, broad benefits from the species to climate. Yeah. yeah. You know, this is one of those issues that I th- – or what, one of those opportunities, at least the way I'm seeing it right now – that I think can hit home, probably hits home with just about every one of us, because I think almost any one of us right now could look back in our childhood to some favorite fishing hole or some little backwoods woodlot where we used to build a fort or chase rabbits uh, or some creek that we used to catch fish in that now when we go back to revisit that place of our childhood, it's a Walmart, it's a highway, it's uh yeah, drainage ditch. I mean, we're we're losing so many of these open spaces, and we're all seeing it everywhere. It just it's happening, and it seems relentless. Um, to have at least some kind of some kind of hopeful goal of hey, let's try to proactively, you know, get ahead of this in a few places. Man, that. I think people are going to get sick of me bringing this up because I'm excited about the positive potential here because I want to make sure, you know, my kids have got a little woodlot to go chase rabbits in and a fishing pond to catch, you know, bluegills in that's not surrounded by industrial development. Um, it, it seems like something that if we get involved with it and and help aim it in the right direction, this this could and should be a really good thing. 
Yeah, I'm totally with you. I mean, again, you have to be an optimist to be in our business. I mean, if you were a pessimist, you would have you know, quit a long time ago and gone and you know built a bunker in the ground someplace and you know lived off a of deer and that's it. <laughs> yeah. But uh, you know, I mean, you have to be optimistic about this, and you want to have these goals, and you want to have everybody sharing these goals. And part of the thing that is, I think, you know, neat about the thirty by thirty concept is, you know, if we get private landowners behind this concept, thinking about how can they contribute to that, you know, long-term goal as a nation and the world, you know, I think that's good. And not see this as something that's a threat to them, but it is something that, you know, could make sure that they have that farm and their family for generations to come, you know, doing good things, not just for producing crops, but for all the other ancillary benefits, including access and teaching their grandkids to hunt and fish in that same place that they learned. Yeah. So it seems like we're, this is another one of those issues that's in a little bit of a wait and see kind of position. Um, is, is there anything that, that we should be thinking about on this front other than just keeping tabs on it and seeing what opportunities arise? Yeah, I think just keep tabs on it at this point. I mean, there's never going to be a, you know, a sort of a hard legislation on 30 by 30. This is an aspirational goal. And uh, which is good. And I think that, you know, but let's just frame that goal in the right way and make sure that we're all you know, working on the same page. And you know, again, you, you know, just you know, sign up as a you know, supporter of ours and we'll, you'll get a weekly you know, email from us and there'll be plenty of updates of where we are in that 30 by 30 process. And to the extent that there is actually a real stakeholder process that moves forward to help define this. I mean, we want to be engaged in that, which means we want, you know, all of you folks out there to be engaged in it, too. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I, I want to jump back to something we were talking about at the very beginning when you brought up um, uh, some of the things that we're thinking now as a hunting fish fishing committee related to some of the climate initiatives out there. And uh-huh. the the move that we're seeing happen towards more and more renewable energy. Which yeah. which seems like a good thing in a lot of ways, obviously, as you look at uh, the different environmental impacts of energy consumption and how it's uh, derived. Um, and obviously, wind and solar now is becoming a lot more affordable. It's seemingly, it seems like that's the direction things are going to be heading more and more. Um, but I I live in an area where a big wind farm was recently put in, and so I've all of a sudden seen uh wind energy up close and in person and uh experienced it kind of a different kind of way with new roads being built and all these wood lots you know a hundred of these things put up all around me and roads all over the place and construction crews all over the place and um 16 windmills within view of the house and flashing lights and all this and it, it just kind of gave me a different perspective from, you know, hearing about something in the news to then seeing it in person. And then, you know, I also started seeing solar farms popping up where a hundred acres of what used to be uh, a farm field uh, is now a hundred acres with metal barbed wire fencing all around it and nothing but solar panels across the entire acreage. So what used to be wildlife food and used by some amount of wildlife is now 100% 100% a wildlife desert. I, I was listening yep. to a podcast recently where they're talking about this and they were talking about, you know, if, if the country is going to shift towards renewable energy in the way that folks are talking about, it would require solar farms or wind farms, uh, you know, across tremendous 
tremendous uh, scales of, of, of land, like states worth of square miles covered with things like this. And the first thing that came to my mind was, man, I, I get and I appreciate the need to have cleaner ways to get our energy. But how do we do this in a way that doesn't uh, create another biodiversity crisis like you were just talking about? How do we do this in a way that doesn't end up, you know, eliminating all the open land we're trying to save with 30 by 30 initiatives? Um, is this something that's on your guys' radar yet at all? It just seems like something that oh, yeah. we're going to have to yeah, think a lot about. Yeah, we hit you. I mean, listen, development is development, and it doesn't matter whether it's a wind turbine or an oil derrick. I mean, if, for example, if you know, mule deer is coming down its migration, it sees it, it's going to go around it. Uh, it's a you know, sage-grouse is going to move its leck you know, from that area um, because you know, they have been grown up. They've evolved over millennia to avoid any you know, tall structures because that's where the raptors sit and pick them off. So if they see some sort of tall structure out there, they're not going to be anywhere near it. So, I mean, there are all these ripple effects, you know, on species from, you know, renewable development, the same way there are with oil and gas. And I think that, you know, and then you mentioned the viewshed issues, you know, the roading. I mean, the notion that renewable energy is, you know, does not have any impacts is just simply not wrong. I mean, it's simply not right. And I think that we need to be way smarter about how we cite these. And we be, we did a process back with the Obama administration probably a decade at least ago where we there were a whole bunch of proposals for new solar developments around the West, and there was a lot of pushback. So we convened a summit in Las Vegas with the Department of the Interior, with our community, with the states to talk about siting and got a bunch of those proposed areas taken off the board. Now, you can put a solar development out in a desert someplace, and it probably doesn't do a whole lot of harm. And there are probably good places for it, and there's always going to be some sacrifice you know, if we want to have energy, period. So I get that. You know, we've seen some you know, research recently that you know, offshore wind tends to be good for fish, provides some underground structure, underwater structure. It keeps the commercial fishing out. And over time, you're going to have stronger you know, fish populations and better recreational fishing. So there are places where this can be done. It can be done well. I mean, I just flew in from a business trip on Friday, I guess, Thursday. And you just fly into a place like Washington or out of a place like Atlanta, and you look at all those enormous big boxes with nothing on top of the roofs. Right. I mean, all of that ought to be solar. I mean, give me a break. Yeah. I mean, why are we developing you know, virgin land out there when we have all these areas that we can incentivize to, you know, you know, put solar in our communities where we live, which also, by the way, decreases transmission costs substantially. So I just think that we have to do a better job. I mean, because the, you know, the, the issues that you cite where you're seeing, you know, people are seeing all over the place. And I think we have to, and listen, I'm all for clean energy, but I am not for, you know, sort of spoiling places, wild places, you know, at the altar of renewables. Yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of like uh, throwing out the baby with the bathwater kind of deal. Like you're trying to solve one problem, but you're making a whole nother one. So there's gotta be some yeah. kind of better way to look at it. Um, and plus, I mean, we, we've got to look at things like, you know, small nuclear. I mean, I'm sorry, but I mean, that's probably as about as clean as you're going to get. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think the technology may not be quite there yet, but it will be. And we're going to have to you know, make some sacrifices. And I think things like that are definitely going to be part of the mix, you know, down the road. And honestly, I think, you know, probably have a lot more potential than, you know, vast wind farms every place. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be something to keep an eye on. That's for sure. I, it, it seems like the winds of <laughs> to uh, shamelessly use a pun, the winds of change are blowing on this front. And uh, it's, it's something that I think if, if, if there aren't some loud voices cautioning folks to do this in the right way, we could end up being, you know, just in as much trouble as we would be otherwise. And, and uh, yeah. I hope that's not the direction things go. So but listen, I mean, we're also, you know, because now that this is so much in the conversation, the technology is just going to improve, you know, from battery storage to solar panels to new wind turbine designs, you know, that don't chop up birds and bats. You know, I just think that, you know, technology is on our side here and we just can't be you know, satisfied with what we're seeing right now because it's got to get better. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so, so moving on from fun topic to fun topic, how about we talk about CWD? <laughs> uh, oh, there's another fun one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I know you guys are are placing an emphasis on keeping chronic wasting disease in the conversation. It's one of those things that I know deer hunters have. I, I think there's been some fatigue, which which. Uh, which is unfortunate, but at the same time, understandable. And I honestly, sometimes like, gosh, I hate talking about CWD too. Um, but I know this is something that, uh, we have to keep an eye on. Can you give us an update on, on what you guys are seeing on that front? What are some of the important moving parts right now? So, you know, as you know, and as a lot of your listeners know, there was when CWD first popped up, there was pretty strong funding from Congress that went out to the States for surveillance and testing. A lot of that dried up around 2011. And so what we've done is we try to get that funding stream you know, reinstated. So the states actually have the ability to go out there and test animals to find out the extent of it right now. And you know, we've been you know, blocked by the captive deer industry along the way, which honestly would prefer people not know where it is. But we got you know, $5 million in last year's bill. We're going to get more than that into this year's appropriations bill. We also have been focusing on the research side because there's still a lot of questions about you know, transmission pathways and you know, how you can get rid of it. So we've got about $45 million tucked into the uh, coronavirus relief bill at the end of last year for you know, research into wildlife-human disease interaction. And obviously part of the focus of that is things like bats and coronavirus. But you know, it's, got, it's also going to be used for CWD research, too. Because, you know, if CWD ever does jump from wildlife to humans, you know, it will be 100% fatal. I mean, it would be, of course, the Jakob disease, the bad cow disease. And uh, we can't have that happening. Because, you know, we've, the place we've really seen growth in the hunting industry in the last decade has been in that whole, you know, the food you know, side of it. And people wanting to harvest their own clean non-GMO, locally sourced protein. And uh, if people all of a sudden start thinking it's not going to be safe to eat venison, then uh, it will change hunting as we know it without any question. So we just think there has to be a big investment in this. And we, you know, folks like Senator Martin Heinrich will be proposing legislation shortly that will dramatically increase funding for surveillance and testing going out to the states. We think it'll be about that $50 million range is what we need. I mean, the scary thing is that, you know, basically nobody has been doing surveillance and testing over the last year because of coronavirus. So we don't know what's happened, you know, where it's spread. And I think a lot of states, honestly, are afraid to look because, you know, where they figure they haven't had it in the past, 
you know, they are wondering if they do have it now. So we got to get past that. We need good data. Uh, we need hunters to be a part of the solution. So if we have you know, the state fishing game agent says we got to knock down a population someplace, you know, we are the best people to do that, not sharpshooters. So get out there, work with your state fishing game agencies. But you know, what we're really focusing on right now is, you know, the research is surveillance and testing funds for the states. And then we also want to make sure the Department of Agriculture, you know, gets on top of the herd certification program, which right now I think just gives really, you know, captive deer industry and others, you know, a false sense of security because it just keeps popping up in these certified, these certified, you know, CWD free facilities. And that's because they're, you know, moving deer around all the time. So I would love to see a moratorium on the interstate movement of deer, you know, until we have a much better handle on transmission pathways, on, you know, the efficacy of the herd certification program. Um, but, you know, the easiest way for this thing to spread is in the back of a truck. Yeah. And it seems like you said that uh, there's a lot left to be desired as far as the processes for, for monitoring these places and uh, regulating these places in a smart way. So, uh, unfortunately, it just seems like this has been something we've been banging our heads against a wall on for a long time now. Um and and maybe it is as simple as as funding and, and hopefully having one of these technological breakthroughs that eventually gives us insight into what's a real long term solution. But it seems like right now it's it's monitor, slow the spread, and and hope for for something good to come down the road, right? Yeah, and that's what it is, and it's it will travel very slowly. You know, if nature has its own way. I mean, you know, not quickly at all. I mean, the tra- plane that travels is when, you know, you're moving live deer around for the cap facilities. It travels when you whack a whitetail and you throw it in the back of your truck and you drive three states over and process it back at home. Yeah. I mean, those are the things we can't be doing anymore. Yep. And, you know, that's, that may change our lives a little bit. It may be more of a pain in the ass, but, you know, for the, to keep enjoying what we're enjoying is well worth that sacrifice. I also think that it's time for the hunting community and your listeners and Steve's, you know, we just, I mean, the obsession with bigger and bigger racks, is going to kill hunting eventually. I mean, to the extent that, you know, that is what's driving these shooting facilities where some, you know, jackass can fly in from wall street and shoot a 300 inch deer that afternoon and have it on his wall in a week. You know, that's not hunting. Yeah. And we can't, you know, sort of, I mean, I think our community needs to push back hard against that sort of stuff and dry up the demand for these canned hunts. Yeah, they are not helping the cause in, in, in a number of different ways. They're they're punching holes in the boat, that's for sure. Yeah, and that's just not what hunting's about. I mean, that's, and it's, you know, if you're an outsider, you're skeptical of hunting in the first place, and this is what you see, I mean, you're not going to, you're not going to accept that. No, no. It, it it sheds a shines a horrible light on on what hunting is and and leads to a lot of misperceptions and uh, causes causes a lot of trouble. I'm I'm right there with you on that. Yep. So, do you have any more really fun topics like this that we should cover, or or is there anything <laughs> yeah, yeah. that you are actually optimistic about that we should uh, that we should close on? You know, I think I've talked about the things I'm optimistic about. I mean, I, I actually, you know. I'm always optimistic because I always think we can do better. And I think that you know, if you think about the last year, you know, the silver lining in coronavirus is that 
you know, a lot of people who had either left the sport or never tried it got back into hunting and fishing. I mean, the hunting numbers look like it was a 5% plus growth from you know 2019 to 2020. And that is huge. Fishing is going to be at least 10%. And, uh, you know, that is a ton of new folks in. And, yeah, some people will complain that, oh, it's more crowding. But, listen, I mean, this is a good thing. I mean, they're paying into the conservation system. They're the future stewards of these resources. They're the folks who are going to, you know, write to Congress and ask that, you know, conservation be maintained. So, you know, I'm excited about how do we convert, you know, all these new hunters and anglers into conservationists. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that is, you know, we've talked with our, you know, federal, you know, our corporate partners about, you know, we had Chris Metz, the CEO of Vista, which is federal and Remington ammunition and a bunch of other outdoor brands. He was talking about that. We had Dave Boltheis, the president of Pure Fishing, you know, on the same call talking about how they're going to try to maintain that, you know, growth in the fishing side. But that's exciting and that's fun. And that's, you know, after years of just seeing these declining numbers, you know, this is, you know, I think it's pretty cool. And I think it's something else to get excited about. Yeah. That, that is like you said, the, the silver lining and definitely an opportunity. I mean, that's, and it's a thing that's probably, I don't know. It, it seems like this is a once in a generation kind of upswell that we have here that we either take advantage of or, or we let recede back into, uh, the past. So, so hopefully it's something where yeah. we can help well, these folks. Plus, connect. You, know, it's, you, you remember, you know how hard it is to get into this sport. If you're not from, you know, if you didn't, your father didn't show you how to do it or your mm-hmm. mom didn't show you. I mean, you know, so I think it's coming on all of us to embrace these new hunters and anglers and welcome them in, you know, teach them the ethics, teach them the proper way to do things, teach them about, you know, if you see somebody's truck there, don't go into that same area, go someplace else. You know, all these things that they may not know on their own, but, you know, they're not going to learn unless we embrace them and teach them. Yeah. Yeah, very true. So, so for folks listening who have maybe not traditionally dove into the advocacy or conservation related things, but they were curious enough to listen to this one because they want to know what's going on. Maybe it's even some of these new hunters or new anglers who have gotten interested in trying it out. And so they're listening to this and they're kind of realizing that, wow, there's a lot of things going on around me that are impacting whether or not we can hunt or fish or whether there's places to hunt and fish and critters out there. For somebody like that who now you know, kind of wants to take another step, not in taking action, but in learning, are there any books, books or films or documentaries is there anything out there that has inspired you or that you might suggest folks check out if they want to kind of broaden their horizons on these types of topics? Well, I mean, first of all, this, you and I have not talked about this. This is not a shameless plug, but they ought to read your book, you know, That Wild <laughs> Country, which really talks about, you know, sort of the public land experience, which, you know, a lot of hunting and fishing in this country takes place on. And I think, You've made it accessible in that book and uh, something that people can learn a lot from and be inspired from. Thank you. So I think that's, you know, one place. And But even go back to the you know, the early stuff. I mean, you know, a Sand County Albanac, Alder Leopold, is, you know, reads as relevant today as it did back in the 1930s. Yeah. And it is, you know, a phenomenal book about, you know, the ethics of land and hunting. And uh, I just, you know, I can't recommend that, you know, you know heavily enough. Yeah. You know, go back and read a biography of Theodore Roosevelt, one of the you know Morris biographies that talk about 
you know, building that public land network, among other things. Read, you know, Tim Egan's The Big Burn, mm-hmm. you know, that really talks about, you know, that period in the early 1900s when the forest fires were sweeping and it was, you know, the Forest Service and our public lands were really on a knife edge. And, you know, that, you know, the experiences from that whole catastrophe really strengthened what is now our public land network. So I just think there's a ton of really interesting stuff out there in our community um, that, you know, folks can, you know, look at and learn more about. And I'm, I'm only scratching the surface, but, you know, have your listeners in your comment section, you know, recommend their favorites. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure there's a whole bunch I have not read. There's a lot of good ones out there. That's for sure. Um, okay. Next kind of final thing then would be of, of all the things we talked about, we've talked about a lot of far ranging issues or ideas uh, that folks could be, you know, possibly taking action on or thinking about or trying to help move the needle on what, what's your top priority of everything we've talked about. If you want to leave our listeners with one thing that they should do something about right now, one action they should take, uh, what would that be? Weigh in on CWD. I mean, you know, that is, you know, I, it is, that is a crisis right now. We need funding for surveillance and testing. We need to do the research. We need to you know, stop the spread of this thing because the consequences, if it does jump to humans, are catastrophic. Um, you know, that is the, uh, the short-term one. I mean, it's not too difficult to know what we need to do. But then, you know, longer term, I mean, it's, you know, we have a unique system in this country. And uh, engage. I mean, engage, you know, in your local, you know, national forest and its planning rule, engage in federal legislation. You know, there are multiple you know, ways you can engage in things that make a difference hunting and fishing in this country. And a lot of them are not terribly sexy. Um, but, you know, if we don't, if we as hunters and anglers don't stand up and support this system and maintain it, it's not going to be there in the future. Very, very true. And, and we're awfully lucky that it, other people did that in the past and, and now we get to benefit from it. So, so I'm right there with your wit. We need to keep uh, passing it on yep. forward. If, uh, if, totally people wanna, if people want to connect with what you guys are doing over the, the TRCP, can you give us a scoop on where to find that? Should we sign up for the newsletter, other things like that too? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, sign up is free to be a you know, supporter. You can throw some money at us. You get a hat or, you know, or this Helios rod or a Browning shotgun, depending on how much money you want to throw at us. Um, but if you just uh, sign up as a supporter, you will get a weekly newsletter. Uh, you will get updates on you know, things. You'll get alerts as to when something, if you identify what you're interested in, that things you care about are popping up. But then also, you know, support, you know, our variety of partner groups. You know, support your local Pheasants Forever Chapter, National Deer Association, you know, Mule Deer Foundation, you know, whatever it is, because those groups do amazing work on the ground. But if you want to find out more about us, you can go to www.trcp.org. And I think it's pretty easy to navigate our site and uh, enjoy. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll loft out a little plug here since you plugged my book so nicely. <laughs> I uh, I absolutely would recommend folks listening to sign up for that newsletter and become a supporter. It, it really is, you know, one of the biggest challenges with being able to engage on a lot of these wildlife and habitat related issues is just keeping track 
of the million different things out there that are happening. And if, if you're not proactive about keeping tabs on what's happening with our public lands or wildlife or conservation related issues, it's really easy for a lot of that stuff to just happen and you never know it. But uh, you guys do uh, as good of a job as just about any, as far as keeping, you know, us up to date on important things going on. You've got a lot of great articles on the website that provide updates on current issues, on legislation, on priorities that we should be, you know, talking to our representatives about different stuff like that. I mean, it's, it's really been a great resource for me. So I can't, I can't recommend it enough. Um, and I just, I just want to thank you, Wit, for the great work that you and your uh, your team's doing. I uh, I appreciate it, and I appreciate your time here today. Hey, listen, I know we'd all rather be talking about you know patterning whitetails and things like that, but uh, <laughs> every now and then we gotta gotta make sure we have that you know opportunity in the future. So uh, thank you for raising the issues. Absolutely, Wit. I appreciate your time. Let's do this again. That right, sounds great, Mark. Thank you. And that's gonna do it. Thank you all for tuning in. Appreciate you listening. Appreciate you uh, being a part of this awesome hunting and fishing family we have. Thanks for taking action when you can, for speaking up for wild places and wild things, and uh, for being a deer hunter. Because being a deer hunter is a pretty damn cool thing to be. I certainly am proud to be one, proud that it's my lifestyle, and uh, I'm looking forward to getting out there and seeing some big velvet bucks here in just a matter of weeks, probably weeks or months by the time this sucker's out. So uh, until then, until next time, thank you and stay wired to hunt. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.